0: If you're new here, my name's Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to put in one more shameless club for thir- plug for Thursdays at Sunridge. Listen, if you've been at Sunridge for a while and you've been sitting in these rows, this is not the end game to us. This is not the end game. We want you to get in circles and you have such an opportunity, not just through what's happening here on Thursday night, but in many other ways. There, there are groups and classes and studies that you can take and it's a place where you can deepen your faith and you can connect with other people that are like-minded and are kind of, they're trying to grow, too, in their faith. Don't, don't just sit there. Take a step. Take one step. We promise we won't hunt you down. We won't do crazy things to you. Just try one of these classes. And by the way, if you've, what we're telling anybody that's new to Sunridge, if you're new here, like in the first two years here, you should go to a rooted group, you should go to Financial Peace University, and if you're married or thinking about getting married, you should go to Lasting Promise, because when you do, not only are you gonna meet some great people and find community and connection in your church, number one, you're gonna get grounded spiritually through Rooted. If you're, if you're married, you're gonna get, get some skills and tools to work within the context of that marriage, and Financial Peace University, I promise you will change your life. If you've never taken a course on how to Direct your finances uh, according to God's word and and what and make wise choices. It will totally change your life. So there it is. Commercial's over, okay? Everyone okay? All right. So I want to tell you, you guys are all revved up today. That helps me a lot, by the way. Um, at my age, my energy starts to fade at some point, you know. So I didn't even have a Red Bull this morning. So listen, uh, l- people that are a lot smarter than me have figured out that, there are, that our happiness in life is really tied to three things. Our circumstances, people, and things. Example, like if, if your circumstances are all lined up, you, your business is doing great, your situation is good, um, you got your health, you're probably happy in that area. With people, we, we don't even need the Bible to tell us how important lasting and meaningful relationships are. It's like if you have, if you have people that you're connected to you're growing in that relationship, you're finding meaning in those relationships, you're probably happy. And with things, most of us, we're not asking for a lot, right? I mean, some of you have like an insatiable desire for things, but that's another message. Um, but most of us, it's like, you know, I just, I just want to do all right. You know, I, I want to drive a decent car. I want to be able to have a little money in the bank. I want to be able to go on vacation, maybe. These are just things that we want. And if, and if, if those things are lining up for you, you're probably pretty happy. These things can be called the joy givers, circumstances, people, and things, but if you flip any of those upside down, those joy givers become the joy stealers. In fact, that's the first thing in your notes, and I want to make sure that you get that, that the joy givers of circumstances, people, and things can also be the joy stealers. In your circumstances, if your career is stagnant, If you know there's just a lot of there's no security in your life maybe your health isn't good you're probably not that happy and with people if your relationships are in turmoil you're going through a divorce or something else something in your family or maybe you don't even have relationships you're just lonely you're probably not very happy and when it comes to things if The struggle is real for you. And you're not not hoping for a decent car. You're just hoping that that pile of junk you're driving is going to fire up in the morning to get you to work. And the only vacation you took was vicariously through other people's on social media this summer. (laughs) Then you're probably not very happy. That's why I love this book that we're studying, Philippians. It's named Philippians because... It's written to the church at a city called Philippi at this time. And if, if you've been with us, if you were there last week, um, you know that Paul was this itinerant preacher, dramatically became a Christian right after Jesus' death. And he just got it in him. He's like, I want to spread the word. So he goes around the world preaching the gospel, establishing churches, and these books that we read, many of them in the New Testament are letters that he wrote back to those churches, giving them advice, instructing them in how to continue to follow Jesus. And this particular book or letter is about how to enjoy life. I want to jump in in chapter 1, verses 12. He writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly, between the two, a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Can you see or feel the joy and the, the, the buoyant spirit that Paul has that comes off of these words. I do. But in spite of that, it, you know, like, even though Paul's writing so positively about what's going on in his life, he is surrounded by the joy stealers. Like, look, look at Paul's circumstance. It's not exactly ideal. Verse 13, he says, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. We mentioned last week, but I repeat, Paul's in prison. He's jailed for sharing the gospel. And the, the, the irony here is that Paul is being kept from doing what he loves most because he did what he loves most. To that to his circumstance, I want to spend just a few minutes, kind of in a sidebar, but it's important to, to get the perspective of Paul's circumstances. This is in your notes. I want to look at what it was like uh, in the first century for the persecution of Christians. The persecution of Christians in the first century, first of all, it came first from religious zealots and then the Roman government. First re- uh, religious zealots, then the Roman government. Remember, Christianity sprung out of, Uh, separated itself from eventually from judaism and when that happened there was like all the stuff that you would imagine in changing beliefs and values among people that were together up until that point where they're all on the same page and jesus comes on the scene and like everything's changing and they're they're starting to meet elsewhere and this caused a lot of consternation among the people that were most zealous for their religion you can see it in the life of jesus as he begins to teach and it begins to dawn more and more on the people that are leading judaism that this guy is going to cause us problems and so they start to ratchet down on him and and by the end he's standing before the sanhedrin council which is the kind of the um the court of judaism at that time he's standing before the religious leaders like high priests and even though they can't do anything to him They're causing him to be tried by the Roman government. And just look at the early church. It's like, stop. It was the religious people that were saying, hey, you need to tamp that down. Stop talking about Jesus so much, Peter and John, in chapter 4, and then by chapter 7, Stephen's being stoned for his faith. And by the way, Paul is there when that happens. So it starts in religious zealotry, but eventually it gets to the Roman government. Early persecution of Christian was initially localized, and you can even read in Acts 16 where Paul is at Philippi and what happens there and some of the angry mob that gets after him. But it's like the way it starts, it's like it's personal. And then it's kind of like lynch mobs, and that's what Paul faces in Philippi. You see, at this time, before it really goes full blast, Rome is tolerant of all kinds of religions. You could have your religion. You could have your God. Believe in all your gods. There were all kinds of gods and and places to worship. But, of course, you also need to acknowledge that Caesar is God. And, you know, Christians got where they weren't willing to do that. And that started to cause problems. See, Rome said, you could have your religion, just don't cause us problems. But when Christians failed to acknowledge Caesar as God... And when they started upsetting, because of their beliefs, because of their values, they they upset the culture and, in many cases, economic systems. Now we have problems. And so it started localized, but escalated exponentially in 64 AD when Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Nero is the emperor, and he kind of... He has it in his mind that he'd like to gain some more real estate, but he doesn't know how to get it. He wants to develop. And so a fire starts, and literally it burns down almost all of Rome, which makes that land available for Nero. And this is what comes out of history eventually. But at the time, Nero blames Christians. They're a nice, convenient scapegoat. And so it goes from being these localized issues, it's kind of personal and angry mobs, to now it's full-scale persecution of Christians. In Paul's case, he is probably held at this time under what's called house arrest. Paul is likely under house arrest. See, you had some options with prison at that time. Under Rome, you could be thrown into the Mamertine prison, which is more like a hole, like a dungeon. And um, you could be there, or in Paul's case, he's under house arrest. He's either in a home or he's in the palace. Scholars debate this, but he's not in like a prison like you think of. But he's he's chained to a Roman guard wherever he is. So this is pre-GPS ankle bracelet, and instead you get a Roman guard. It's a little more clunky. To pull around. And they would change the guards every six hours. So in in regards to people, Paul isn't with the people that he wants to be with. You get that, right? He longs to be with them. Instead, he's stuck with these Roman guards. You could say that he was in a small group in a way. But it wasn't a group of his choosing. By the way, if you join a small group at Sunridge, we don't chain you to anybody want to make that clear. And then the last thing I think that will give you perspective on what Paul's situation was like is the inmates depended on friends and family for their necessities. You See, unless you were wealthy, remember you're in prison so you have no way of earning a living. Unless you're wealthy you were dependent upon other people to take care of you. And by the way, the wealthy didn't get put in prison. So Paul unable to work, he's without. You, you, you didn't get three squares a day. It's like you were lucky to get some gruel, but if you wanted bedding or clothing or like food that you could survive on, your friends and family had to take care of you. So Paul, in terms of things, he's gone from a guy who has a bullet, a rocket on him in, in his career. He's 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 a Pharisee, a Pharisees. He's trained by the, he's gone to the Ivy League schools of that time. He's got everything dialed. He's got a great career, and then this whole thing happens. He becomes a Christian and jacks everything up for him. And now he has he's not just like suffering as a guy who's traveling around the world preaching the gospel. He has nothing by human standards. Paul has no reason to rejoice. In that situation, he writes this beautiful letter about joy. And I think that there's something for us to learn today, even though you're not in a prison, you're, you, know, you don't have a Roman guard chained to you. You might be wearing an ankle bracelet, and that's why you're wearing long pants. That's okay. But he's in a terrible situation, and yet he's so full You know, last week we talked about that the secret to joy is found in the gospel. Today I want to, like, unpack that a little further with this is our title. Joy comes from a gospel-focused perspective. Joy comes from a gospel-focused perspective. When I say perspective, I mean attitude, a, a way of looking at the world, a frame of reference. And you're going to see that Paul's perspective on life is through the lens of the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul uses the word gospel more times than he uses the word joy in this letter. It's interesting, isn't it? So it's it's the lens in which he looks through things. And I have four questions that come from the text that um, I think lead us toward having a gospel-focused perspective. And I offer them to you. Question one, how is this allowing the gospel to advance? How is this situation, good or bad, peak, low? How is this allowing the gospel to advance? Uh, Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see that? To advance the gospel, it's like the, the language there is like an army moving forward. It's uh, settling a land. It's like there's progress. How is your current situation enabling the gospel to move forward? It can happen a couple of ways. First of all, just externally, our situations are opportunities for us, good or bad, to. It gives us opportunities to talk about how God is working in our lives. It gives a chance for the gospel to come up and for us to talk about the meaning of life and why Jesus makes a difference in this situation. And so the gospel advances through sometimes my struggles. You know, when, when things aren't going well and circumstances people are things, it's pretty easy to just complain or get angry and get anxious or frustrated. What if, would it be a game changer if like in the middle of what you're going through, you said, I wonder how God could use this to shine his light. You know, that definitely happened with Paul because because of the fact he's in prison. Christianity is talked about in the Roman court system. Paul stands before really high-level politicians and, and people that are in great positions of authority and he talks about jesus to them and it begins a conversation that's like this little sect that's happening over in this jewish land that's kind of spreading and now they're talking about it in the courts and among key circles in the roman government what's happened to me has allowed the gospel to advance it can also happen just within us The gospel can advance and take more ground in our own hearts. How how is this thing like allowing the gospel to grow inside you? Think about it. Maybe you came to church today, and this is your last-ditch effort. Like, you know, your last thing is like, you know, I've tried everything else. I guess I'll try God. Well, that's no pressure on me, right? But, you know, maybe the thing that you're going through is a way that God can reveal more of who he is inside you. Jesus talked in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter, chapter 13, about how the kingdom of God is like uh, yeast. And, you know, like when you make bread or whatever you make with yeast, uh, it, beer and wine. Do you make beer and wine with yeast? I don't even know these things. It um, It permeates. Where it is, it's like, what if, what if what you're going through right now, that God's doing something inside you that allows the gospel to grow within you? Would that, would that be a game changer for you? You're, you're in the middle of like a lot of relational turmoil in your marriage, or you're struggling in your finances, or maybe you've just like been slapped in the back of the head by your circumstances. What if, what if you looked at it from that perspective? It's like, God... How is this going to help me to understand you more, to understand the good news of Jesus Christ? How is that going to grow inside me? Sometimes our biggest challenges are the greatest catalysts of growth. Question two, how is this revealing something unique? Looking at our circumstances through a gospel-focused perspective can cause us to say, what's the unique thing that's going on here? Notice in verse 14, Paul says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Isn't it interesting to you that Paul doesn't say, in spite of my chains? He says, because of my chains. You know, we sang earlier and often sing about how our chains are gone. I love singing that. But what if those chains that are holding you down right now are really there for something unique? God's going to reveal something unique through your period of weakness. Paul doesn't get frustrated here. You don't hear him saying, God, please get me out of this situation. This stinks. I want to move on and do do the stuff for you. You got me like trapped here. Some Neanderthal. limitations what feel like limitations can also be opportunities you know one time I heard somebody say that God never intended to use us in the areas that we're not good at and I, I think that that's total baloney God doesn't tend to use it of course like we all want to be using our strength and that's our sweet spot but how many people in the Bible does God use in their area of weakness? Did Moses feel like he was ready to lead the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt, go talk to the Pharaoh? No. Did Gideon ever think his army was big enough? No. Were the disciples dialed and all ready to go and be take on the world? No. God used them in their weaknesses, and that's how he uses us. Sometimes I think he uses us more in those areas of weakness. I think it's easy for us to get what I call the if-onlys. You know, God, if only I knew more Bible verses, I could talk to my friend about God. I could bring up a spiritual conversation. If only, you know, if only I'm in church for 30 years, then I could become an usher at Sunridge. If only I made more money, then I could be generous. It's like, if only, if only, if only. These are all excuses that are expressing our anxiety and our like what we feel are our weaknesses. Now, if you can't sing, that's a whole different story. Like if you can't sing, God, you're not gonna sing solos, right? That's one we can say, okay. But if if you're just saying if only all the time, maybe, maybe God's kind of nudging you and wants to use you in your very area of weakness. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about that in his second letter to the Corinthians. We don't know what it was, but he had this thing that beset him. It could have been emotional, physical, spiritual, um, psychological. He just says that he called it a thorn in the flesh. It's a thing he wanted to go away. He felt like it was holding him back. And he said, I prayed over and over and over again. And God never takes it away, which by the way, says something about the theology that says, you know, just name it and claim it. God doesn't want you sick. You're never meant to be sick. You're never meant to go through this struggle. Just claim it and get out of it. That is not true. Paul is in the middle of a struggle, and he's praying with all of his earnestness, take this away. I don't like it. It's holding me back from my perspective, God. And here's what he hears God say to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, And here's what Paul says in conclusion of hearing that from God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You want to enjoy life? Allow God's power to rest on you. How would it affect your ability to enjoy life if you acknowledged? Continue to pray as Paul did. God, I don't, I don't want to be in this situation. I don't want to continue to struggle in my marriage. I don't want to like, I, I want more things. I want, I, I want a nice life. I want to move ahead in my career. God, I want all those things. But in the meantime, I'm looking for your power to rest on me in the midst of my weakness. You know, we can all sit around and go, man, you know, there's just some things that I can do standing on my head. You know, it's so easy. It's come so natural to us. And I, and I love it when we're in that group. And God uses those things. But, you know, when you get done with that, you know what people say? Man, he's really good at that. You get admiration. But when, when you step out of your comfort zone and God, God does something unique You know what they say? Look at how Christ's power rests on him or her. By the way, if you focus on your chains rather than what God is doing with you, you're only going to lengthen your sentence. You got to get ahead of that and move on and look for what God is doing. Question three. This will help you get a gospel-focused perspective. How is this helping to clarify my values? How is this situation, good, bad, and different? The thing that I'm struggling with today, it's like, how is this helping to clarify my values? Verse 15, Paul says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfless ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. You know, Paul is just catching it from all sides. It comes in the form of persecution from his former colleagues. It comes from the political system that he finds himself in. And it comes even from his brothers and sisters in Christ. Other preachers who are, t- for whatever selfish reason, for whatever envy, or that would never be in church, right? There would never be envy or rivalry among Christians and different groups, right? right? I just want to make sure we're all living in the same world here. Like, it happens. Paul's catching it from everybody. But look what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You know, that, that situation is really clarifying for Paul. Who knows what he cared about, all the training that he had. I'm sure he had, like, all this religious tradition and theology all loaded up in his brain. And you would never want to debate him. And yet, like, something about going through this crisis makes him stand back and go, you know, the important thing here is that Christ is preached. It's not that Paul didn't care deeply about theology or the accurate portrayal of what the gospel is. He's not saying, like, nothing matters. It's just about priorities. It's about seeing things from a different angle and and keeping the main thing the main thing. And I think that this is what happens in challenging times. It has a way of purifying what we formerly called beliefs and turns them into convictions. Beliefs are one thing. Beliefs are in your head. But a conviction is something that it's like it's nailed down. And usually that conviction comes from a belief when that belief has been challenged or you've gone through an experience that elevates it in a way that you go, I got that. I understand that differently now. You know, you might have believed that drinking and driving is not good. It could hurt somebody. It could get you arrested. But when you got that DUI, I bet that belief became a conviction. Right? You might believe that you are deserving of, And uh, God's intention for you is to have healthy, meaningful relationships and to be in in a marriage that is blessed by God. You might have believed that, but that relationship you went through a few years ago that was so toxic, you came out of that and you said, I will never allow myself to be treated like that again. That's a conviction. You may have always believed that, you know, I... Education is very important. I need some things to learn if I want my career. I need to learn some things if I want my career to move forward. And yet, the last 10 years of banging your head against a rock and not even being able to get the interview for the job that you want because you don't have that piece of paper, that belief turned into a conviction. And you said, yeah, I'm going back to school. It's a pain. i got to go at night. i gotta, I got to raise kids. i got to do these things. But my belief turned into conviction. See what I'm saying? This situation, because Paul was looking at it through the lens of the gospel, it like, it changes his perspective in a way that like, it lets him see what is really, really important. Last, last question, question four. You can get a gospel-focused perspective When you ask this, how can I emerge from this with more passion and focus to help others? How do I go through this? So that on the backside, I can help others. You know, when you're in a challenge, it's really easy to turn inward, to be overtaken by self-pity, by anxiety, to be gobbled up by all the poor choices, guilt and shame. Look what Paul says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. it's It's almost like he's bolstering his own courage here. In verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was saying what's the worst thing that could happen they could kill me that's pretty bad right I heard a preacher one time say that you know to live is Christ and to die is gain but I'm just not ready for that much gain I can relate but in verse 22 he says if I am to go on living in the body this will mean fruitful labor for me Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. A desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Of course, heaven, once we get there, it's like, it's going to be beautiful. Far better than anything we're experiencing here. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy and the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. What Paul says is, I would love to go and be with Jesus, but if I'm not, the thing I can't wait to get to do is to help somebody else. This is what a gospel-focused perspective does. It, it allows you to see life through the lens of, like, who am I helping? Who, who really needs me? And Paul says all of this just adds up to, like, there's gonna, God's going to bring something out of this that will be really powerful in someone else's life. You know, in a Christian's life, whatever your experiences are, there's nothing wasted. You're not going through something today that, that doesn't have some meaning or purpose if you, allow it, if you allow God to work in you and through you. You know, this is like, there's nothing wasted on preachers either. I, you know, I have like, everything that I see that possibly could ever be a sermon, even if I don't know what sermon it would be, it's like I throw it in an idea file. I have a file on my computer, it just says idea file. And any idea, picture, whatever I see, it's like, oh, there's a sprinkler. There's a, there's a message in that. And I just throw that sprinkler. Um, you know, some, somebody does something, I'm like, oh, that's a story. It's like, and it's like, it's just loaded up. It, it's, I think it might be 100 pages now. There's nothing wasted on me. You know, I can never turn my brain off that way. It just it goes with this job and, you know, a lot of it's anxiety. I have to admit. It's like when you're a preacher like every week you got to get up and talk for 30 minutes, what if I run out of ideas? I can always go to my idea file. It's always there. The problem is later I'm like sprinkler head. I don't why did I put that in there? <laughs> I don't know. You know, life is the same way. There's nothing wasted on a Christian who has a gospel-focused perspective, and that perspective is this. How is God going to use me with the people who really need me? Now, listen to me, Christian. Everybody needs Bible study. Everybody needs their group. You need connection. You need belongingness. You need to grow and learn more. But if you as a Christian, if you're finding that all of your spiritual life is, is wrapped up and hanging out with people that are exactly like you, that are virtually in the same stage of life, and that tomorrow if you died, their lives, they'd still walk with God. If that's your situation, you're not going to be happy long-term. Jesus Christ said... That our mission is to go, to go and make disciples. And what that means is we have, we have to be in proximity to people who really, really need us. And when you are, you know what happens? You see God using you. You see God using you in a place to bring joy to someone else's life that be. That without you, it would not happen. And you know what? You will be really, really happy when you're in that place because you'll see that God is using you. We are not blessed to be blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing to other people. Paul says, my ultimate goal is to continue with all of you for your progress And joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. My life will matter. You want to enjoy life? And put yourself around people who really need you. Get out there in the adventure part of being a Christian You know, the secret to Paul's indomitable spirit is not because he was super smart, but he was. It wasn't because he was super talented, but he was. It wasn't because he was super educated, but he was. It wasn't because he was super, uh, you know, just committed and dedicated to everything, but he was. His indomitable spirit, the joy that exudes from him from these pages is because he had a gospel-focused perspective and he saw his life through that lens, Maybe you're here today, and, you know, like I talked about earlier, you came to church. It's like, man, I'm just hanging on. And you don't even know what I mean by the gospel. The gospel is that every person ever born, no matter how awful you think you've been, no matter how far you think you are from God, you are never so far from God that God's love cannot reach you. And you're never so good that you're just above it. Our acceptance with God is based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That is the good news. And sitting in your seat, whenever you're ready, there's no magic prayer, but if you prayed something like, God, I, like, it's a mess. I'm not happy. Things are imploding around me. And God, I, I give up. I cry, Uncle, I place my faith in you. And I accept what your son Jesus Christ did for me, forgive me of my sin. And let me from today be controlled by, to, be, to have that perspective, to live life the way that you designed it to be lived. And anybody who prays that prayer anywhere, God has always answered that prayer. For the rest of us, if you want to be happy, Look at your situation through that lens of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and let, and let these words be your prayer.